1: Thank you for joining us for another Political Rewind. It is Wednesday, May 5th. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm glad to have all of you with us today. Uh, Once again, a lot to talk about, and uh, we've got a terrific panel uh, with us today, so let's get right to it on today's show. It's Wednesday, which means my partner from the AJC is Greg Bluestein, political reporter and uh, author uh, of a book that is no doubt going to become a huge bestseller. (laughs) <laughs> uh, once it's published and released. Hey, Greg, how are you doing?
2: I'm great. How are you?
1: I'm, I'm very good. I'm very well. Thank you. I appreciate uh, you're asking me. Uh, real quick note, I, you, you're heading to Athens for bill signings by the governor today and early tomorrow morning. Uh, and, and the reason I wanted to mention it is um, he's pretty quickly approaching his final day for uh, deciding on whether to sign or not sign. Or for that matter, veto bills, uh, which is next Monday, May 10th, right?
2: Yeah, you got it. That's the 40 days after the, the legislative session ends. That's, that's his deadline. There's no huge mystery. There's no huge bills left that, that are a mystery about whether he'll sign it or not. He's going to sign the citizen's arrest overhaul in the law. He's going to sign a bill that, um, that, that makes it harder for local communities to cut funding to police. Um, There still could be some there's still going to be some vetoes, but those are the major ones still on the on the docket. And of course, he's going to send the budget into law as well.
1: Um, We're also joined by Professor Fred Smith, professor of constitutional law at Emory University, also a member of the board of Invest Atlanta, which is the economic group that oversees economic development matters in the city of Atlanta. Hey, Fred, thank you for being here. But, you know, I've been wondering about the governor with this bill that will restrict how local uh, communities, uh, how cities, counties can deal with their police budgets. And um, it's a controversial measure, but apparently the governor is going to go ahead and sign it. It'll be illegal for a city to cut the police budget by more than 5%, Fred. Sure, that's right. right.
3: And so I think cities that are interested in transforming uh, policing and reimagining policing uh, are going to need to think about how to do it within that particular framework. Um, I don't think this makes that uh, that goal impossible. Uh, it just requires a little bit more, well, imagination.
1: Okay. Thank you for being here today, Fred. We're also joined by uh, Professor Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University and, uh, shall we add, associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State. Uh, she shakes her head when I say that because... Who knew how much work was involved in that title? Amy?
0: (laughs) Yes, it is. I I am glad to be helping out my colleagues and department and making sure that we are on a a good and inclusive path.
1: Okay, well said, Professor Steigerwald. Uh, Greg, let's take a look uh, at the AJC poll. You've got numbers on, and why don't we start at the top? Uh, with President Biden. your This poll, 850-some, I think, registered voters <clears throat> polled over a fair—it's a long period of time. Mm-hmm. It's, included, it's longer than many polls, right, that that they were in the field out this.
2: Yeah. It was from April 20th to May 3rd, and, and, the, and the reason is we wanted to make sure we had— or the pollsters that UGA wanted to make sure they had— um, uh, you know, a, a, a decent amount of base to work with, um, and people who were who they got on, on cell phones and landlines um, alike to have a good good mix. But you're right; it showed that Joe Biden's approval rating in Georgia is uh, around 50 percent, um, and Democrats um, also uh, either on the ballot or who could be on the ballot: Stacey Abrams, Senator Warnock, um, and Senator Ossoff, all at 48 percent. So relatively high. Uh, favorability ratings for the top Democrats uh, in Georgia.
1: Uh, and of course, though, the partisan divide is as strong as ever when it comes to that uh, uh, way of polling.
2: Yeah, um, overall, and this this was a startling number for me, at least, to see that overall, only 38 percent of Georgians think the country's on the right track. 52 percent mm-hmm. say it's on the wrong one. A very small number says they're not sure. Um, and voters are split over the stimulus plan, over uh, the infrastructure package that that is still being under development in Congress um, and over a number of other issues, uh, including Governor Kemp's uh, job approval rating. It's inched up from 42 percent in January. It's at 45 percent now, but it's still well below where it was in January of last year when it was at 59 percent. Yeah, you know, Amy
1: Steigerwald, and then Fred, I'd love for you to weigh in on this. Um, it, although Greg can cite numbers that showed a time when Governor Kemp's approval ratings were in the high 50s, the days when we see as many, <coughs> excuse me, uh, large uh, uh, gaps between approval and disapproval seem to have dwindled in polling in the last few years, I suspect largely because of the huge partisan divide in this country today. I mean, there was a time when 48% approval for people like Warnock Ossoff would not necessarily have been particularly positive. In this environment, being close to 50% isn't as bad, perhaps, as it was at one point in the past, right?
0: No, I think that's very true. I mean, so I immediately went, of course, to all the crosstabs to really look at where people are divided. And What you see are incredibly stark differences from where those who identify, like self-identify as sort of liberal, moderate or conservative. Right. They're completely opposite. Same thing for those who self-identify as Republican versus Democrat. I mean, there really is very little where you're seeing overlap between those two groups of who it is that they disapprove and who they approve of. And so it really does sort of skew it. Um, I think, honestly, these days you're much more likely to see. Um, That type of thing, if we are asking about sort of views of people of either groups that can't sort of be put into a partisan camp or people where people don't know who they are and they don't have a lot of other what we call heuristics or outside cues to be able to do them. But particularly for somebody like the Republican governor of the state, who's fairly well known, it's falling along very traditional lines and we don't see a lot of movement or area Honestly, with uh, Kemp, the issue he has is that his the right. It's the liberals and Democrats are not very pleased with him, which is not entirely a shock. But where he's got more issue is the divide actually between with Republicans and conservatives that they're not quite sure how to view him.
3: Fred, I agree. That's my take on it too. Um, Right, that when you dig down into the crosstabs. Um, what I would find concerning, if I were the governor, um, is that when you look at the Republican numbers, uh, the conservative numbers, and the white voters' numbers, um, that, um, that, that it's quite weak. Uh, so among Republicans, uh, there's 25 percent of Republicans who disapprove uh, of the job that he's doing. Um, when it comes to uh, independence, he's roughly tied but a little bit uh, underwater Um, And when it comes to white voters, it's uh, it's roughly tied at about 40 percent each. Um, And so uh, in some respects, because of what you point out, Bill, in terms of us moving more to a model where people are very polarized and this is a a time and a time again, it's 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 a get out the vote, get out your base election. Um, Then uh, numbers like that. Uh, compared to say, you know, the numbers for African Americans for Stacey Abrams, which are like at eighty-five percent already, and we're a year and a half out, um, that would uh, that would concern. That will be a concerning set of numbers.
1: Um, Greg, I would like you to weigh in on that. Um, I think that both Fred and Amy make good points. This um, we're a long way off from the election next year. And nevertheless, this is not particularly positive starting point for the governor especially when you look at what his numbers in some ways it's a reflection probably of how he has handled the pandemic uh, on one side but it's also a reflection of his uh, uh refusal to support president trump in his efforts to overturn the results of the election here so in any either case he's not starting out in the place that he'd like
2: to be I think you're exactly right. I mean, the poll showed one fifth of Republicans still viewed him negatively, um, and we've seen that on the ground. We've seen that at Georgia GOP county meetings across the state, where uh, about a dozen of them, um, by my tally, voted to censure the governor, the sitting governor, the first Republican, lifelong Republican governor in Georgia since Reconstruction. Um, so you know that was a, that was a, that was seen as a a, a pretty harsh rebuke. Uh, but at the same time, he has also avoided a credible Republican challenger in the primary so far. You know, Doug Collins, uh, Burt Jones, some of those guys either haven't gotten in yet or are or, or not going to. Um, Vernon Jones is a former Democrat who, um, you know, who's running, but he, he's not seen as a top tier Republican contender for that seat. Um, so his standing has has gotten a little bit more solid uh, he's so far avoided that that harsh that you know that that very serious challenge, but it doesn't mean he's out of the woods yet by any means, as this poll shows.
1: Uh, very quickly, because we got to go to a break in a moment. Uh, State where t- tell us about Stacey Abrams.
2: Uh, Stacey Abrams' poll numbers were at forty-eight percent. Um, she's 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 above water, is what we say. She she has a higher approval rating than than disapproval rating, which is a very good sign for her going into. Um, and into, into 2022. But of course, among Republicans, she still has a very high negative review rating.
1: Right. And that's, I would, let's, I want to dig down a little bit into what the numbers say in terms of Stacey Abrams as the potential and presumed challenger uh, from the Democratic Party to Brian Kemp next year. But hey, we're finishing up, finishing up our spring pledge drive, because it is your dollars that support the programming here at GPB Radio. And certainly, are the reason that we at Political Rewind are able to keep the show going five days a week, five days a week. So here's how, if you're not already supporting us, you can do it.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Greg Bluestein, Amy Steigerwald, Fred Smith, I'd like to turn you all into political consultants, if I may, for just a couple of minutes uh, today and start with you, uh, Greg Bluestein. Um, Everybody presumes that Stacey Abrams is preparing to launch another bid for governor. She wants to rematch, we think, with uh, Brian Kemp. Um, what's the timetable? Uh, if you're her consultant, do you have—because she's built such a uh, massive organization of supporters, because <coughs> her ability to raise massive amounts of money uh, has been proven uh, time and time again— is she a little bit freer to hold off on having to do anything publicly for the time being?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if you look back four years ago to her first run, uh, by this point, she had already filed paperwork raising the possibility that she was going to run. Everyone you know, was in the same stance. They all figured that she was going to run. Um, and then around June is when she actually launched her campaign. But this time around, she's in no rush. Um, she, everyone has cleared the field for her. There's not even any talk, even behind the scenes. No one's even kind of raising their hand to people like me saying, hey, just in case Stacey doesn't run, you know, I, I'm looking at it. Um, there's no chatter whatsoever that I'm hearing at all about a backup plan. And um, there's also, you know, she, she needs to look, look no further than John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Ossoff didn't get in the race until the August before, uh, or September before, I think it was, and Warnock didn't enter that special election until January of 2020. So um, there, there's no rush. She already has a, a giant um, fundraising apparatus that has worked very well for her. Um, and I think it looks like she's getting her other affairs in order right now. Um, she's just finished a legal thriller. She's republishing some of her romance novels. Um, she's she's doing just other work right now, I think, to, seems to me, to uh, pave the way for this for this run. <laughs>
1: Um, Fred, the other thing that I I, supp- I suppose is true about Stacey Abrams is, you know, there are, we know, and again, I'm asking you to play political consultant. If you've got a new candidate who's uh, trying to get into a race, uh, one of your goals is to make sure you can define your candidate before the opposition can define that candidate. Stacey Abrams doesn't have that problem. People know who she is. She's established herself clearly. So there's no messaging uh, war that she has to engage in quickly she's already in it
3: that's absolutely right right i mean i think it's uh it's hard to remember how little known she was across the state four years ago today <laughs> um, given that she's now uh you know, is uh is, is such a a national uh and perhaps even in some respects uh, international figure um, when it comes to questions uh like voting rights um and uh, and and so when you look at the poll that we were talking about earlier, there's not a lot of folks who don't have some sort of opinion uh, of her. I think she's sort of really kind of um, claimed her ground as uh, as uh, as a champion of uh, of working families and of voting rights.
1: Amy.
0: Yeah, I think everything that uh, Fred and Greg have said are completely correct. And I think the only issue that comes up, as much like we saw with the Senate races, are for other candidates that might want to enter uh, the Democratic primary. I think it's very clear that basically they're waiting to see what it is that Stacey Abrams decides, right? We're still more than a year off from the primaries. She has plenty of time to make her decision to get in. The issue would be if she doesn't want to enter, other candidates, they do need the time to be able to get their name out, to build up a statewide organization, to do all of those things that Stacey Abrams already has in place. But assuming that she's going to enter the race, she's really sort of in no rush because she doesn't have to do the kind of groundwork that a lot of people would normally have to do to mount a statewide campaign.
1: Uh, Greg, other races are already starting to um, move forward. Uh, we now have B. Wynn, Democratic state representative, who as a <clears throat> young representative with little background in the in the legislature, I mean, with a very short tenure in the legislature, has made a pretty big name for herself. Uh, and now she's uh, entered, as many people expected she would, the race for secretary of state. So Brad Raffensperger is going to have B. Wynn on the left, and at least Jody Heiss, if not more Republicans on the right, kind of squeezing him as he tries to run for re-election.
2: Yeah, that's kind of how I cast it in my story about that. It's an epic squeeze because you're right, it's Jody Heiss, who already has Trump's endorsement, um, who is entering this race as the front runner over the incumbent, right? Because because President Trump's word in the Republican Party of Georgia is still paramount. Um, and there's others, too. He, David Balal. Who, um, who finished as the runner-up in the Republican runoff in 2018 against Raffensperger's running, as well as um, a, tr- uh, a former probate judge from South Georgia. Um, so there's a lot of candidates already in that race. But to me, this also reflects um, a trend <clears> that we're seeing in, in Georgia Democratic politics, which is not long ago, Democrats had to basically beg for down-ticket candidates to raise their hand for, for offices like Secretary of State, Labor Commissioner, Agriculture Commissioner. And now they've got this abundance of of not just candidates, but like top tier candidates who can raise a lot of money and who can who can make for a formidable ticket tested candidates. Um, and so you're seeing that with the attorney general's race you see multiple candidates go in the lieutenant governor's race. Um uh, Wynn in this in the Secretary of State's race, she might not be the only candidate who gets in, but very a lot of Democratic establishment leaders are very happy with with that with the fact that she's getting in the race. And you can have a very diverse ticket too, from top to bottom, with the top being probably Abrams and of course Senator Warnock, and you know uh, Matthew Wilson, who's running to be the first openly LGBTQ statewide elected official in state history. win would be the first. Um, Asian-American elected to a political office in statewide history. So a lot of history-making sort of precedent-setting uh, moments here in Georgia uh, could be coming up. Uh, just one
1: other quick uh, question for you about this. Are we certain that Brad Raffensperger, uh, given everything he's gone through, the travails of that job over the last pl- year-plus, is in fact going to seek re-election? Do we know that's definite?
2: So he said that. He said it repeatedly that yeah. he's running for re-election. But of course he'd yeah. say that, right? Um, so yeah. I think there, there's going to be a, a, a big question for him in January of, of, of next year, or February March, right before qualifying. He looks at his poll numbers. If they're anywhere where they are right now, um, he'll have to make a very tough decision, because right now, uh, as the AJC poll showed, <laughs> too, uh, in January, we didn't poll him on this, t- this time around, but in January, uh, his numbers among Republicans are very, very low. And not only that, but by then, you'll have Jody Heiss on the airwaves reminding everyone that he has Trump support. So Brad Raffensperger is in a really tough bind, and you're right, he might not end up um, qualifying, uh, but there's a long way to go.
1: Amy and Fred, we also have candidates who are popping up to uh, uh, run for the uh, for the 6th and 7th District, particularly congressional uh, seats, and we have a new challenger, Greg Bluestein reported on this uh, just yesterday, I believe it was, Eric Welch who is a Republican who's uh, stepping in. He's a military veteran, and he talks like a military guy. The quotes that Greg has from him, I think, in a video, uh, he's very tough. He's very hard. He essentially is accusing Lucy McBath of being too wimpy to stand up in Congress. Um, but, of course, what's interesting, and I want to hear from you and Fred on all of this, but— you're running for a seat that you have no idea what the lines are going to be by the time they get around to drawing them late this fall, if not early this winter.
0: <laughs> no, we're in the midst of redistricting season. Um, that is going to be happening sort of summer into fall, right? They're, they're going to want to finish that before the legislative season, right, before the legislature comes back into session. Um, so it'll be done before then. But that is... Sort of the real question, right? Is that there's going to be definitely a redrawing of all of the districts boundary lines may change um, possibly in ways that sort of strengthen, right? The hand of Lucy McFath and Carolyn Bordeaux, who are the current seat holders for the 6th and 7th districts, right? They could also uh, make them districts that are more competitive. And this is sort of the question that we're going to have to see, because what they're also weighing is uh, on the other side, right? because Republicans obviously are going to be in charge of drawing it since it's done by the Georgia legislature, which right now is uh, controlled by the Republicans, um, of how much they also want to protect uh, other seats. So, for example, something that a lot of people are going to be looking at is, for example, what happens to the boundary lines of the 14th district? which is uh, currently held by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, what's going to happen with places like the first district, uh, other places like that, and how are they going to be redrawn? So all of that's going to come into play.
1: Fred?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question that the Republicans have in front of them, uh, to the extent that we think about redistricting as a partisan exercise, which I think is a safe uh, assumption. Um, do they uh, work to, uh, to sort of uh, just kind of Count the sixth and the seventh as loss, and and protect uh, the uh, the other seats. Uh, or instead, um, do they uh, attempt to actually make the sixth? And the seventh more Republican. I mean, the reality is that they leave the sixth and the seventh. Uh, uh, even if they make it a little more Republican, it, it will only be. It'll be a couple of election cycles, and they'll be back right back where they were, uh, given uh, the migration patterns. Um, I do want to say, if I can, a little bit about the statewide uh, dynamic. Um, it, back in 1998, uh, I recall when uh, when there was a uh, tremendously historic ballot uh of african americans and uh and white democrats predominantly from south georgia because back then that was the coalition um and uh and it worked and that's what it meant to work right to have an african american for attorney general and for labor commissioner and chief mm-hmm. justice of the georgia supreme court and uh, and to have uh, some combination of uh, folks from the metro uh, like roy barnes but also uh, folks like Mark Taylor from South Georgia, Kathy Cox from South Georgia, and that was the coalition. It's remarkable to me uh, that we're at a point where the coalition just absolutely looks different, and and that when and to, that together now, when we, when one thinks about putting together the coalition, uh, it involves thinking about Asian voters and Latino voters, and mm. uh, and it's and it involves thinking much more about uh, the suburbs. Um, And that's the ticket that's emerging on the Democratic side. And if I can be partisan for just a moment, uh, I'm getting a little excited about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fred, thank you. That's really fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up, Uh, this complete difference between that 98 uh, ticket led by Roy Mm -hmm. Barnes and what we're dealing with uh, this time around. That's really fascinating. Uh, Bluestein, great observation from Fred Smith.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna steal that for a story, then I'm gonna write my book a little bit more define. But he's he's exactly right because this is this is going to be mm-hmm. a um, it's going to get a lot of national attention and that's what I that's what I was even when I'm talking to the candidates as they're thinking you know because I have known B is going to get in this race for I don't know three months now um, and so as we've talked about this a little bit I was I was, I was like get ready for the you're going to get a ton of attention and I don't think even she realized how much attention she got yesterday a New York mm-hmm. Times write up she was on MSNBC and it's because I think of all these down ticket races are going to be really interesting and important but this secretary of state down ticket might be the most watched down ticket race really in the nation i know it sounds hyperbolic yeah. but because of all the attention on brad raffensburger being you know in part of that phone call where trump demanded that he overturn the election results and the pressure it's emblematic of the pressure that republicans are facing
1: All right, i got to get to another break. Um, Here's how you can uh, join us as a supporter of GPB Radio. Of course, I always want to say on these shows, if you are already supporting us, we are deeply grateful, Uh, Sam, Amelia, Jesse, and I, certainly for the support you give to our show, Political Rewind, which we work pretty hard to bring you every day of the week. But here's how you can get involved if you're not. Professor Fred Smith, Professor Amy Steigerwald, Greg Bluestein join me for today's show. Greg, we got a pretty big breaking political news story uh, that's developing right now. It's been about, about 20 minutes since uh, the wire services uh, moved the story. The Facebook Oversight Board has agreed that uh, Facebook was justified in suspending Donald Trump's account after the insurrection on January 6th. Um, they've said he could, it can be extended for another six months. They, they did say that Facebook has got to make a decision. This is an independent group, uh, presumably, that in six months, Facebook has to decide whether to make that suspension permanent or to let him back on the site. But of course, Greg, since January 6, Donald Trump has been denied all access to the important social media platforms of Twitter and
2: Facebook. Yeah, and even yesterday, um, his, his, his team uh, announced some sort of like, I guess it's a, a website, a blog, um, that he'll be sending out his updates. And we still get his updates by email, but it's not the same. There's a, there's a dramatic drop-off, of, according to studies, of just his mentions on on cable news outlets. They used to be dominated by every every tweet, every utterance he made. Um, there's been that, it's kind of gone, gone off a cliff, and of course he wants to be back on these social media outlets. What this group um, basically uh, came together to decide is that uh, the suspension, as you noted, was was justified was justified, but the company needs to apply a defined penalty. It has six months now, Facebook, to make its final decision on Trump's account status, and they want to basically set a precedent that others um, that that could be defined could be applied to other politicians and others who make similar statements.
1: You know, I, but I wonder about something with this, Amy. Um, we we have always uh, presumed that Donald Trump's presence, uh, especially Twitter, have uh, been a big part of why he has remained such a powerful force among Republicans and his supporters. But he's been off those social media platforms now for four months, and there is no sense that his power among Republicans is diminished at all, which I think is kind of interesting. It'll be somebody could end up having to do a study on what the implications of that are.
0: Well, I think the other way to look at it, though, is that he built the base, right, an incredibly loyal base that he has, and a network through using those channels. And if they hadn't existed, he probably would not have been able to reach people in the way that he did. So the fact that, like, he himself hasn't been on for a couple months is sort of negated by the fact that all of the people that work with him and that support him are and are still incredibly loyal to him. I, I think the real better question is, is to understand, like, what has really kind of created this sort of unending loyalty um, mm-hmm. to him sort of as a political figure and as a leader in ways that we don't normally see. Right. There's lots of other leaders where criticism is, um accepted or invited, um, whereas we don't see that with him and that his supporters, that there there is no sort of wrongdoing. And that, I think, in and of itself is, is the bigger thing to look at. And clearly he used his metric there. I think the issue for Facebook is to try to figure out how do we quantify, right, the harm of words? There has always been, right, that the way that we counter speech that we dislike is by other speech, but there's also within uh, particularly constitutional law sort of a recognition that there are, in fact, some certain things that are uh, problematic, like direct incitements to violence. And so the question is, is how do we sort of balance those and where is that line drawn, particularly with uh, the posts that he had done previously?
1: Fred, we're talking your world.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I think that's a,
3: a really great set of questions and one, uh, a set of questions that I think a lot about and, uh, and that there are just simply no easy answers to, right? I mean, clearly, I mean, for Facebook, Twitter, they're not bound by the Constitution. They're not bound by the First Amendment because they're private actors, but, um, but that's the beginning of the conversation uh, when it comes to free speech, not the end. Um, we still have to ask societally, when you have um, companies that, uh, that are so responsible for the architecture of speech um, uh, in this country and how people uh, get information, um, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of power. It's a lot of power to uh, – to, you know, and so in, the, in this particular instance, um, even if there are folks who celebrate this particular decision, I think we all have a responsibility um, to ask ourselves how much um, we will tolerate uh, in the way of, uh, of, of of locking people out of platforms as a result of their speech. So these are conversations that Facebook and Twitter should be asking, but they're also conversations that we, the broader public, should be asking. Given um, how important these uh, they've become to I almost said these agencies, but <laughs> how important these <laughs> institutions uh, have have become uh, when it comes to the architecture, the overall architecture of our democracy.
1: Um. Greg, uh, let, let me change subject again uh, real quickly. Uh, I I've wanted to mention back when we were talking about candidates who may or may not be getting into the 2022 race. I didn't mention Burt Jones' visit to Mar-a-Lago. He went with his dad down to see President Trump at Mar-a-Lago. They posed for a picture, the three of them. He, Jones posted it on Twitter, and it's got a lot of people talking about whether this is the beginning of Jones suggesting he may challenge uh, his fellow Republican, Brian Kemp, Kemp next year. What What's the, the buzz around that?
2: Yeah, and we should mention that Jones's father owns a petroleum company in middle Georgia that is very, very successful, and they're, they're loaded. <laughs> They've got a lot of money. So he could self-finance his campaign. Uh, I'm not sure to what degree he would want to do that, but Either way, he's got a, a hefty bank account. Um, so that plays a factor in all this, too. Um, I'm pretty certain he was very – well, I know he was very interested in, in running for lieutenant governor back when it looked like he could primary lieutenant governor Jeff Duncan. But now that Jeff Duncan uh, plans on not standing for another uh, term, uh, that's kind of uh, thrown a wrinkle into all this. Does Burt Jones join what could be a crowded uh, open open mm-hmm. field for lieutenant governor, or does he try to make a run at either governor Kemp, or he could still run for Senate. Um, as, as we've noted in the on the show many times, uh, a lot of the big names have already stepped aside. Everyone's kind of waiting to see what Herschel Walker does. But but even if he um, gets in the race, I don't think that will scare away some other folks um, from from jumping in, like Gary Black, like like Buddy Carter. Um, So we'll see how that plays out. But Burt Jones can run for any of those three seats. I tend to think he's more likely to run for lieutenant governor um, where it's a wide open race than try to go against Governor Kemp, who already has millions in his bank account. Um, And uh, and and, you know, as we've talked about, this poll still has a a deep well of um, of support among among Georgia voters, Georgia Republican Um, voters, I should say. Okay. Uh, and Amy,
1: as we look again towards 2022, um, John Ossoff safe, he's got a six-year term. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raphael Warnock, we know, has to run again uh, next year. Uh, and, and there are Democrats like uh, uh, Carolyn uh, Bordeaux, like Lucy McBath, who are going to stand for re-election. And the question is, in Georgia, what kind of awkward situation is President Biden creating for Georgia Democrats as he talks about the uh, tax increases that he wants to apply for businesses in order to accomplish some of his you know, social agenda of uh, giving more aid in many areas to uh, the American people. How do, what kind of tightrope is that going to make them walk?
0: question. Though I think it all has to do with how it's framed, because when it's framed as lower and middle class individuals are bearing the brunt of supporting what is happening and those who make lots of money are in fact not uh, giving back that corporations, for example, right, all the News reports have come out about the different corporations that have paid zero taxes, that people who um, have incredibly large incomes are not actually paying lots of taxes. If it's framed in that way, then it's actually where polls show that it's a much more palatable argument. And most people, right, the idea that they're going to make $400,000 in a year is unfathomable. So the idea that that group should have to pay a little bit right, more in taxes than particularly somebody who is a – you know, single parent who is working to support their children, et cetera, or working multiple jobs or only making minimum wage, doesn't sound so bad. And I think it has to do with sort of where that framing comes in. And we haven't seen a lot of Democrats really suggesting that there's a real issue with that focus on, on raising it. So I'm not sure how much that of type risk that's gonna end up being.
1: Well, I do want to say, Fred, Carolyn Bordeaux has already weighed in, and uh, her statement was she's putting on her green eye shade and sharpening her pencils to look very carefully at the Biden proposal. So clearly, she's aware up there in the seventh that she's got to be careful about how she deals with a big tax increase proposal. Absolutely.
3: As you might have guessed from my earlier comment, right? I think about coalitions. <laughs> Um, and uh, and so when, so at this you know once upon a time right I think that, that given the, what the coalition in Georgia for Democrats used to look like um, that you know a number like four hundred thousand dollars would seem absolutely unfathomable, but now that uh, that the Democrats have made inroads uh, in the most affluent parts of the state. Um, and the most affluent uh, congressional districts in the state, um, then I think that story is a little bit more complicated uh, in terms of how one wants to think about it and talk about it. Um, you know, I, I suspect it may be the case that the capital gains uh, increase might be one of the more popular increases, maybe not the full 43 percent number, which is where it was under George W. Bush. Um, you know, but, but I think that, that in particular, uh, I think people can kind of understand, uh, you know, t- uh, taxing uh, investments, at least in the way that other income uh, gets taxed. Um, but I think, you know, that when it comes to uh, now, I sound like a Republican, but when it comes to taxing um, small businesses uh, and, uh, and and taxing folks um, who really have become a part of the Democratic coalition in Georgia, um, that's to that say we, we shouldn't do it. Um, I support these revenue balancing measures, um, especially given what we'll get out of it in terms of infrastructure uh, and, and getting our way, uh, moving our way forward and building up a, a, an economy that, that works for everyone. Um, but it is something that I think politically is sensitive
1: spoken by someone whose brain is at least partially engaged with his work on Invest Atlanta and and the implications for how you deal with economic development. Greg Blustein, we're really short on time, but I think it's fascinating that both Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, during this recess, are visiting renewable energy uh, businesses. Uh, We had uh, Ossoff up in Dalton, I think, visiting a company that does something with solar uh, uh, portions of solar batteries, or and then uh, Warnock going to SK Innovations, which is going to be a big battery producer. It, it tells us, I always think of that as an appeal, not just to the renewable energy folks, but to younger voters who get that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, and it's fascinating. And, and Raphael Warnock is an in SK uh, Innovation today, actually. And it's fascinating because these are green tech, clean tech, green tech uh, companies that are sprouting in very Deep red parts of the state, so so it's not only appealing to younger voters, but also to to maybe some conservatives who who have a future in this industry
1: and who want jobs. Uh, we're out of time. I hate to uh, interrupt this conversation. Greg Bluestein, Amy Steigerwald, Fred Smith. Um, you know, I'm going to throw it back to another pledge break, but I hope think about this wonderful conversation we all just heard. I feel like really lucky that I get to listen to people like Blustein Steigerwald and Fred Smith, and I suspect you do too. So we would love to have you allow us to continue bringing you shows like this. I'll be back again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, please put it above your nose. And since you've probably already been vaccinated, tell somebody down the street it's time for them to do it as well. Here's how you can support us.